0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's
2: Scott Thompson.
0: It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, another jam-packed show uh, coming up. It's the anniversary of nine eleven. 11 Yeah, hard to believe, isn't it? Hard to believe that uh, 9-11... Uh, and remember the first year or two after 9-11, everybody was really anxious about it. Then the 10th year anniversary of it, I believe it's 22 years now. Uh, people were concerned, uh, and now that's all come and gone. But uh, still uh, memorials, memorials uh, in throughout the United States and such, and around the world, uh, marking, uh, again, this bizarre day. Everybody remembers where they were, if they were alive, what they were doing uh, when they heard the news. Um, just a, a, a bizarre situation, which I think closed down uh, the, the uh, airways for five days or so while we figured out what the heck was going on. So uh, many commemorating that in the United States. The Freedom Convoy, um, uh, whatever, continues in uh, Ottawa. It's hard to pay attention to the Freedom Convoy when there's not any horns. If there was more, I think you should have more horns in the courtroom, and then that way we rest of us would be paying attention about what that occupation was. Good luck saying the word "occupation" but around our Ukrainian friends. Uh, when it, it was it really it, was it really a, a occupation or was it a protest uh, egged on by the prime minister who then passed it off onto the soft round shoulders of the Ottawa mayor and the soft round shoulders of the Ottawa police chief and we already and we all know what happened from there. Well, we didn't really have a plan. We didn't really listen to the intelligence. We didn't really. We thought they just all go away with their tail between their legs. And you know when you don't do anything. And you let it fester for three weeks. Guess what? Sooner or later, you got to read the Riot Act or the Emergency Act, whatever it is. Uh, so yeah, there we are. It's uh, it's still continuing. Going to be fascinating to see where that all ends up at the end of it all. And uh, speaking of events, uh, as you know, the Prime Minister uh, was at the G20 over the weekend in India. And is he left yet? D- d- is he still there? Did he has the has the Prime has his plane arrived? Has this Uber plane arrived? There's a picture of the uh, of the prime minister sitting on the back of a golf cart, uh, getting chauffeured through uh, the airport. And and you know the uh, you know at the end of the day the prime minister's got egg on his face for all of this because he doesn't spend any money on the military. The military is not a important uh, part of his. Uh, policy. It's all about saving the world and saving you and me and everybody from each other. Um, but doesn't really spend on the military. And, of course, it's the military's job to fly the prime minister around. And they're having issues with this 36-year-old plane. What? <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Pierre Polyev is on a WestJet plane grabbing the intercom and, and you know, barking for, uh, you know, soliciting for votes, campaigning, you know, on, on the intercom at the WestJet, sitting with the uh, with the common folk. And there's the prime minister sitting on the tarmac. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of bizarre that uh, he's really not doesn't pay much attention to the military until, of course, they can't get the plane ready. So now I guess they're waiting for a piece because they don't make the plane anymore. And I understand this plane was an old Ward airplane. Do you remember Ward Air? Oh, man. Uh, anyway, so uh, they're trying to get the pieces and they call over. Do we got an Uber plane? Can we get an Uber plane? Canada's not broken, you know, but the Prime Minister's jet is. That's what it is. It's not the it's not the country that's broken, it's just the tools that are around the Prime Minister. And then meanwhile, Pierre Polyev's flying back from uh Quebec City to Calgary and he's aboard a West Jet plane and you know, he's doing a little campaigning along the way. Uh, so there you go. So uh, the prime minister, not in a good mood, obviously, because his relations with the Indian president are uh, tense, to say the least. And, and now he can't get off of the ground uh, in the country uh, simply because of. Uh... We're waiting for the part. Where's the part coming in from China? Isn't it? Isn't a China part? Was the plane made in China. Anyway, looks good on them. Uh, you don't pay attention to the military and then it's your job uh, it's their job to fly you around safely. I don't know. If you're gonna bow out of the military. I might get a, I might get a season's pass with Air Canada see if you can get the family flown around there.' get you know get your little uh, you book that whole front section there that whole or on the other side of the curtain. Go out in there on the other side of the Trudeau curtain. Nobody'll even know you're there. Get on last, get off first. Nobody'll know. The only difference it would be is like when you're getting on your Air Canada plane to go to Florida or Disney World or wherever it is that you're going, uh, you know, and you're bringing the knapsacks and the kids and the and the uh, you know mouse ears and whatever. You'll have to wait till the prime minister stops at the top of the staircase and waves to everybody. And then we can get on the plane and go to Disney. All right, enough of that. Uh, Jam-packed hour coming up. We're going to talk to Dr. Sylvain Charlebois about agriculture and food in this province and where does it all actually come from. Uh, We're going to have that uh, discussion. Also talking about the Beasley neighborhood and encampments in that area. And we'll talk to Keith Mackey of Mackey International, see if he's got a spare part for the Prime Minister's plane. All right, lots of chatter about the Greenbelt. And, uh, you know, I've said to you before, and you think... this is a debate now this is this discussion is going to be going on for the next 5 10 15 20 years uh just like lack of housing in the last 5 10 15 20 years shortage of is going to have this debate so uh you, you know it, it it seems that we're having this debate on the extremes which is either this or that and nothing in between and where are we with all of this how much of this is is, uh, prime farmland that is needed in order for our food production. Uh, you hear that a lot. Uh, uh you hear a lot in regard to the wetlands and, and, and floodplains and stuff like that, which also, which obviously you, you, you can't build on for, for obvious reasons. But many times when we're having the debate, it's, you know, we're taking up you know, prize prime land that Ontario uses to grow food and such. So, where does Ontario's food come from? How much of it do we grow ourselves? Um, just what is Ontario's role as um, as a producer of food? Let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, professor of food distribution and policy, director of the Agri Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And here now, Sylvain, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Well, how about you guys? So far, so good. You know, uh, when we talk about the, the green belt and, and I don't want to get too much into the debate or the politics of it here, Sylvain, but we often hear, you know, this is prime agricultural land. If we keep mowing this stuff over or paving it over, what have you, we're not going to be able to produce food. Talk to us a little bit about Ontario food production and, and, and what is it? How does it all work?
3: Well, so with with farming in Ontario, uh, you're looking at a massive uh, economic sector. Obviously, uh, it generates billions of dollars of revenues for the province and and for 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 industry. Obviously, um, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, food manufacturing is the larger largest manufacturing sector in the province. Uh, it even exceeds uh, cars. So it's a, it's a massive uh, enterprise. And you need to support all that, and the only way to do that is to actually have access to farmland, which is why I've been a big fan of the Greenbelt for a very long time. I think it's really a worthwhile policy, but not just for food security. Uh, it's it's two million acres. Yes, it's a, it's a large, large piece of land, but I've always believed that the 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 biggest value uh, of of the Greenbelt for for city dwellers, is, is to have that green space close to the GTA, close to where most Canadians actually live.
4: Mm. Uh,
3: a lot of Canadians won't live on a farm, won't even see a farm. My, my bet is that most people in the GTA or even in your area, in Hamilton, uh, it is your only chance to actually see cows, livestock, or a farm ever in your life just because you're just driving through it which I think it, it, it really helps better understand, better appreciate what farming is all about, especially uh, in an era where this rural uh, urban divide is, is so immense.
0: How much of Ontario is great farmland? Is it all southern Ontario? Is it central Ontario? I mean, obviously, if you go up in a plain, uh, Sylvain, there's a lot of green there.
3: There's lots of green, but uh, of course humans aren't stupid. They will always <laughs> establish large cities where grounds are fertile. Let's face it. Montreal is another good example. The thing about Montreal is that uh, is that they've made this huge mistake of of covering uh, the province's most fertile farmland with asphalt and concrete many years ago on the island of Montreal, which is where. Uh, you know a lot of the fertile agricultural land is located. and uh, And that's why I thought, while, the Green belt is really a way to avoid uh, a mistake that other cities have actually done in the past. And so that's why I thought this was great. and And for people who may think that the policy doesn't work, it works. Uh, there was a study that was conducted by OMAfra uh, released a few years ago. Uh, it, it basically stated that 32 acres uh, were, uh, were lost due to the greenbelt that were located in the greenbelt. But outside the greenbelt, when you look at fertile agricultural land, over 11,000 acres were lost. So you can see that the greenbelt policy is working and needs to be preserved.
0: How do you manage this over time when you obviously hear of the housing shortage that we have? How do you balance all of this? Is there a way to do it?
3: I I understand the pressure. Absolutely. I mean, uh, who doesn't want economic growth? And of course, you need to accommodate more people, you need to build more housing. But there are strategic ways to do that. I mean, uh, we do have access to high tech transportation now. I used to live in Guelph and uh, Guelph is expanding now because of the GO train. Mm. I mean, with uh, with with transportation, you can do a lot of different things. And, and let's face it. There's lots of pressure coming from employees to work from home now as a result of COVID. Uh, I don't know about you guys in Hamilton, but here in Halifax, a lot of people are still working from home. So those are things that you need to be considering
5: uh,
3: instead of perhaps making mistakes you'll regret down the road.
0: Well, you, you talked about towns like Guelph, who are uh, Kitchener, what have you, who are on the opposite side of, of the green belt. How do you manage the growth on both sides of it?
3: Well, so that's you, you need to really think about things strategically. Of course, i'm not a politician i'm not yeah. a, I am not ai do not sit on a municipal board. Uh, I have the easy task of looking at this at a very high level as an academic. but when when you, when you think about land you, you can't create land uh, now nowadays because of uh, of uh, control environment agriculture technologies that we know we can build vertical farms, we have greenhouses all over the place now, especially in southern Ontario. Hmm. And so you can create land, but you can't create fertile agricultural land. And and of course people in cities need green for mental health. They need green to feel real, to feel human. And so those are things that are hard to measure that we can't forget about. <laughs>
0: Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, Dalhousie University. The great Ontario Greenbelt debate continues. Sylvain, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care. Bye bye. You know, if there's a housing crisis and we often have the debate of affordability and this, that, you know, if there's a shortage, it, nothing's affordable. <laughs> you know, you, you can build a thousand, you can build, uh, let's, let's use an example. You can build 20 homes that are a thousand square feet. But if there's a thousand people applying to buy those, they're not affordable anymore. You want to build a whole pile of them? That's a different story. But again, it's, you know, we have politicians debating over the size, the this, the that, the whatever. No, 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 no. Everything. Everything needs to be built. You know, we always say that the crisis or any crisis affects those at the lower end of the spectrum. Well, if the middle class can't get into a home, how are anybody who are those that are struggling below the middle class, how are they ever going to get in? Uh, so it is time to really focus on what is going on. And I think one of the points that that drove this home for a lot of people was all of a sudden when we st- saw our neighborhood parks turned into campgrounds and encampments. And the next thing you know, we're talking about how do we do this? How do we manage this? How do we <laughs> all the time? I'm thinking, isn't the snow coming soon? Terry LaCorte is with us now. Terry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
4: Thank you, Scott. I'm very well.
0: So describe what's happening in your neighborhood. Describe what you're seeing over the summer.
4: So we're in Ward 3 with Beamer Park being uh, in our neighborhood. Uh, We are seeing an increasing amount of violence. Uh, You know, probably that there has been a homicide there. There was a knifing. I personally have been threatened um, to have my head bashed in with a brick. Um, we have witnessed intravenous drug use on the children's playgrounds. So, as a result of the slow or lack of response by our counselor Narendra Nan and Mayor Horvath, our neighborhood has formed a coalition. Um, and we have approached the mayor and the counselor on numerous occasions, um, asking them to live up to their obligation to keep us safe. And unfortunately, um because of the slow or lack of response by the city, um, our group is now exploring uh, legal avenues to force the hmm. city to live up to its obligation of keeping us safe.
0: Uh, obviously, no quick solution here, Terry. What do you what does the neighborhood want here?
4: Uh, the neighborhood basically wants the city to enforce its own protocol of keeping the tent population away from the playgrounds and the children's splash pad that unfortunately had to be closed this summer. They've been very slow to respond. Um, The violence at Beamer Park is growing, and the city has now spent the taxpayer dollars to hire a 24-7 security detail, but they are simply bathroom monitors. So the violence continues at Beamer. Our children still continue to be threatened
0: uh is this getting worse is it getting is are you seeing signs of it getting better and any any, is it getting better in any way
4: no it is not getting better in any way which is what we have made the government officials aware of it is getting worse Um, we are getting actually some of the tent population from woodlands park which was totally dismantled And now they are coming to Beamer. So the the size of Beamer Park means that really there aren't any tents that can be set up within the protocol, the city's protocol. But there are 14 tents there now in breach of the city's own protocol. So they've been very slow to respond. And that's the frustration here.
0: Uh, and, And what do you hear from the city when you talk to the city?
4: Uh, Well, first, they refuse to acknowledge that Beamer Park is not large enough to accommodate any tents, although we've gone and measured ourselves and asserted that over and over. Um, They are just saying basically it will take time, but they're not making us any promises. And as I say, the security issue uh, has not been addressed at all.
6: I, uh,
0: what do you think the solution is, Terry? What do you, because obviously there's no place for these people to go. Should, should there be one designated area? Should there be I'm field so hospitals? What should that, we do?
4: What, so where glad do you, you think? Asked me that. Well, Yeah, you know, go for the it. Ten, the 10 proponent groups in Hamilton um have hundreds, if not thousands of members who are advocates for 10 people and accuse the rest of us of not being compassionate if we don't want them in our backyard. So the city statistic is there are 165 tents in the city. If 83 of those proponents put two tents in their backyards, and by the way, some of them I know personally, they live on sprawling estates in Ancaster and Dundas, if they each simply took two tents, we have eliminated the tent population overnight.
7: Hmm. And have
0: you suggested that?
4: (laughs) Yes, I have. (laughs) I've personally suggested it to some of those members.
0: (laughs) So is there a solution?
4: That's the solution. Uh, But, you know, it's the old story of put your money where your mouth is. You know, these are the people that will go to court and rally, and these are lawyers and other professionals who will rally for the 10 people but, you know, if they're uh, sitting on a home with a lot of property and they could easily accommodate two tents, and if, as they say, these people are no threat <laughs> to society, the answer is put two in your backyard. Just 83 people, do it. The tent population has been eliminated.
0: Boy, that's an interesting way to look at it, Terry. Um, what uh, What do you think is going to happen come wintertime? Because, again, I've had this discussion with the mayor and, you know, even when we were talking about protocol, it's like, you know, we're talking about a protocol here that's going to last you like 30 or, uh, you know, 60 days and then there's snow going to be flying.
4: Yeah, I don't know. I think um, one of the issues that um, isn't really discussed a lot, and I have gone down to Beamer Park and conducted interviews with these tent people because I am not without compassion. I moved here about eight years ago. And I have actually had an outreach program to give some of these otherwise unemployable people jobs. So I have been a proponent in many ways myself. Um, So when you interview some of these people, it's interesting because they do not want to go into shelters. They have dogs, they're using drugs, and they will tell me blatantly uh, they do not want to go. And their schedule for the day, I don't want to repeat it on air, but it's not something, you know, that could be done in a shelter they want the freedom of conducting their lives the way they conduct them without any oversight which of course is a problem because we're not enforcing the laws with these people with illegal So values. Terry
0: Terry, do you think this is a homeless issue or do you think these are people, or in some cases, I guess you can't paint everybody with the same brush, that the, 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 this is their option? This is what they want rather than Whoa. being in a shelter. And now the whole shortage of, of housing thing has just accelerated that.
4: In in many cases, yes. They've told me it's their choice and they don't want to go into a shelter. But, you know, I think there needs to be a hierarchy of how we provide for these people. And, yes, there are people in tents that are the working poor for whom my heart goes out. Working poor, people who've been evicted Mm. and can't afford rent. And I understand that responsible citizens who need housing. But I do believe there should be a hierarchy and that the working poor, especially with children, should be put on the top of the list for any consideration for housing. And I don't believe that that hierarchy is in place and i think you know everybody's name goes on a list but i think there should be some weeding out and definitely you know the senior citizens people with children working poor you know put them on the top of the list
0: how uh, we've only got a few seconds left how what's it like for the kids in this neighborhood what's what's it like for them to see this
4: it's appalling i watched a 7 and 8 year old stand 5 feet away from an intravenous drug user, out of his mind. They were on the playground. It's appalling. The splash pad was shut down. We lost our park for the summer. So our group is actually exploring the legality of withholding some of our property taxes going forward.
0: Terry LaCourt with us, resident in the area, uh, one of the neighborhoods where encampments have become a problem, uh, and you've been hearing her story. Terry, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Stay in touch. Thank you, Scott. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the entourage spending uh, some extra time in India uh, during the uh, the G20 uh, because the 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 Prime Minister they've had some issues with his plane, which is a Canadian Air Force plane. Uh, that's whose responsibility is to fly uh, the Prime Minister and dignitaries and such around. Uh, now apparently waiting for a part to arrive for this 1980s era plane. My goodness, no house, no. Pl- Plane. How's he getting through? Let's bring in Keith Mackey, Mackey International. He's with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
1: You're welcome, Scott. I am. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Keith, any information here? What what sort of part are we missing here? What is needed? What, What left the prime minister in India?
1: Well, we can read a lot between the lines here. Now, the Canadian Air Force calls that airplane a Polaris, but actually, it's an A310 Airbus. And the A310 was kind of a transition airplane between the A300, which was the original Airbus and was not very modern, and the A320, which was fly-by-wire. Not many airlines operated the A310 because it was unique. And I'm sure there's a lot of unique parts in it that don't uh, correlate to any other aircraft, particularly computer and electronic-related equipment, because this was for its day a very advanced airplane, and with a more common airplane, for example, if the prime minister were using a, a Boeing Triple Seven, other airlines would operate the same airplane, and when he's in Delhi, there'd be other spare parts available through other airlines to fix the airplane and get him back on line again. But apparently, they've found a difficulty with something that is not easy to find—a spare. And they do have one that apparently is en route on a commercial airplane to get them patched up and flying again. But the Air 310, most of the airlines that used to operate them phased them out. And I think Iran, maybe the only company, uh, country left still flying the A310. So uh, it's a bit uh, kind of an unusual airplane.
0: I heard that, and I don't know if this is true or not, this was like an old Ward airplane.
1: It could be. It could have been uh, used from Wardair. Uh I can't remember if they had them, but I would not be surprised if they did. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's a good airplane. It's just that it was uh, not produced in great numbers. And it was quite different from the Airbus that preceded it and all the fly-by-wire ones that followed it. So they've got an unusual machine that's going to be very difficult to support. I mean, there's nothing dangerous about it as long as you except the fact that parts
0: are hard to come
1: by and delay is with it are probably not going to be infrequent.
0: So, uh, we've talked about this before, Keith advantages, disadvantages to having old planes. You say, as long as they're kept up, then what is the life expectancy of a jet airliner?
1: Well, there again, uh, the structure of it doesn't have a real life limit on it. Uh, there's a practical amount of how much it could have flown. I've flown some jets that had uh, uh, well over 80,000 hours on the airframe, and were still going strong. And they were in daily service. Uh, As long as the components are changed on schedule, and the airworthiness of the airplane is kept up, they're not unsafe. There's a few things that you may want to understand about how Airline type aircraft uh, are maintained the uh, government issues what they call a minimum equipment list and it lists everything that's on the airplane and On an airliner, we want redundancy. so if something breaks, we have a standby in order to replace it and in many cases, we'll have say three things like a uh, a directional gyro, and if one of them should break. They could use the other two for a limited period of time specified by the government until they can fix it. So it really doesn't slow things down. But whatever broke here probably either can't be replaced or they can't find the part, which is what I think has probably happened. Now, it may be that they can change the part out in five minutes as soon as they get the new one. But the point is, It wasn't available and caused the problem.
0: Uh, Does this happen in the US? What does the president fly around in?
1: Well, he flies around in a 747. It's a relatively new airplane. There are backup airplanes, but of course, if the president's in Delhi with it, uh, there's not going to be a spare airplane sitting there for him. But the 747 is still a fairly common airplane, and parts for it are not difficult to find. So uh, the fact that this is a unique or unusual airplane, I think, is the root of the problem here.
0: Keith Mackey with us. Mackey International. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, spending an extra night in India while they wait for a part for his plane uh, in order they can uh, do repairs and get them back up in the air. Keith, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve
4: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News Today's Talk, 900 CHML. I'm not sure if you're aware enough, but there is a trial on uh, involving the Freedom Convoy. Uh, again, we should be adding some horns or some bouncy castles to this just to get everybody's attention. Can we not have exhibit A in the courtroom, please? Horn. Bouncy castle, whatever. Um, last we checked in last week, they were trying to figure out, uh, what the definition of occupation was. Um, you know, is that like what we're seeing with Russia in Ukraine? Or is it what happens when a protest shows up to Ottawa that there just doesn't seem to be a plan or any preparation for? Where does it go from here? Let's bring in Tim Powers, chairman, Summa Strategies, managing director, Abacus data. He's here now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're
6: well.
8: Oh, I'm good, Scott. I miss the bounce castle. I don't miss the horns. I do not or never will miss the horns. Um,
0: so just uh, wh- wh- what's it like in Ottawa? Because I'm not sure how much this is playing around the rest of the country, but I'm sure it is there.
8: Uh, it, so the, the trial started last week, as you pointed out, involves uh, Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, the two organizers uh, of the Freedom Convoy. It's basically been every day it leads the local newscasts here uh, with updates all of the media here have people there and uh and they're filing on an hourly basis if it's radio or or television or whatever platform they're on um that said in, i don't know how interested people are here in it at the moment because it looks like like any legal case It's going to go on. Originally, Scott, it was supposed to go on 16 days. Uh, now they're starting to ask for more time um, because it's not going to get done in 16 days. The defense uh, the gentleman by the name of Lawrence Greenspan, well known in these parts, he's a, uh, an excellent criminal defense lawyer, mm-hmm. is, is leading the defense, and he appears to be managing the, the things well for his clients and challenging many things and slowing things down. So, uh, people are <laughs> just... Trying to, you know, get their kids back to school and do other things and watch this as best they can. But much like the convoy itself, it's going to go on for a while.
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're bringing propane tanks into the courtroom. Um, yeah. uh, you were talking about Greenspan and, and such. Uh, he was debating last week whether this really should be called an occupation, and occupations with Russia is Russia is doing with Ukraine. Uh, this perhaps more just a a protest that's gone horribly wrong. Uh, did they ever figure that out?
8: Well, they seem to have moved off from that. Now they're so I don't know what the resolution was, other than the sowing seeds of doubt around that particular word uh, as people look at this. Now the 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 challenge today, uh, and I guess yesterday, has been around witnesses. So the crown wants to call a number of people who. Are involved in or were involved in living in the downtown area We're impacted by the downtown area so everyone from the organizer of the the, the lawsuit that was launched um, against uh, the Freedom Convoy, uh, Zexy Lee is uh, is the person's name, to people who worked at the Shadow Laurier in Ottawa, you know that the Shadow Laurier is front and center in the downtown Mm -hmm. and was certainly front and center in the protest, a business owner, other people. um, You know, the uh, Greenspan is now arguing, well, I'm not sure we can have these people, particularly the person launching the lawsuit because they have their own uh, agenda here. So they're fighting over who can appear and who can't appear, but clearly the crown wants to paint the picture of how, um, difficult the freedom convoy was for local business owners and local residents. And that the impact of the occupation as they defined, it was real.
0: Uh, we certainly know what happened. We certainly know how much uh, of a problem and aggravation uh, this was for the city of Ottawa. Joking aside and such, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously this this was a, a lot of trouble, which was why the emergency act was eventually called after after three weeks. That being said, what's the objective here? What are we trying to figure out? What will we know when it's over?
8: Well, they've been so. They, being uh, Leach and Barber, have been charged with three or four different criminal offenses, uh, 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 starting with obstruction. Um, So what the Crown is trying to say is, look, these people didn't uh, intend to have a legitimate protest they intended to break the law they were leaders in bringing people in and organizing this protest and as a is the charges that have been levied against them they should be found guilty of those things and uh uh and uh, punished accordingly
0: uh what do you think will happen to them
8: yeah, I don't know at the moment. I think this is, again, Greenspawn is like any good defense attorney trying to cast so much doubt around all of this. Um, Barber and Leach are here. Um, they're sitting in the courtroom. Um, I'm sure in some sectors they still maintain kind of a mythical status and maybe a bit like trump Scott. You know, the more you're charged, uh, perhaps, uh, the greater your particular supporters think um, you, uh, you are uh, – a a true leader, but again, hard to tell where that, where this will go.
0: Only got a few seconds left, Uh, Tim. The justice said this is a risk of going off the rails. What do they mean?
8: Uh, Well, I think turning into a circus uh, as in, uh, you know, the defense protesting everything, slowing this whole thing down, which again is their strategy and it much like the convoy dragging on and on and on Mm. and no resolution being found in the time that it was supposed to be found.
0: Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, an update from the Freedom Convoy trial, which is now on in Ottawa. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Hard to believe, but it is the 22nd uh, anniversary of 9/11. And I'm sure everybody who is alive, and if you were an adult at the time or at least old enough to know any better, uh, remembers where they were when you heard the news of this horrific situation and what continued on through the course of the day. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and here now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
6: Hi, Scott. How are you?
0: What was it like for you,
6: Phil, on this day way back when? Wow. You you talk about these iconic moments, right? I I have older brothers, Scott, and and for them, it was a JFK assassination. They remember where they were. I was much too young Mm. when JFK was assassinated. For me, I was at CESA's headquarters, and I was doing my normal sort of, you know, beginning of the day, looking at uh, messages that had come in, some of the intelligence we were getting. And someone said, a a plane has just struck, you know, the World Trade Center in New York. And I'm not going to lie to you, Scott. I I didn't go to, oh, my God, it's an act of terrorism. I thought, well, you know, what Cessna is at the tower? It, it, It has happened. And then while I went into a room to watch a TV screen, there's the second plane hit and all and it was this this surreal moment that these are full-bodied air, you know, passenger airliners that have just crashed into two iconic, you know, buildings in downtown New York. It can't be anything other than an act of terrorism. And there was this kind of stunned silence. But you know, in the immediate sort of minutes and, and hours afterwards, I was really impressed by my cease colleagues who went back to work, figured out what, what has happened, what does it mean. Are we safe here in Canada? Was there any connection to Canada? Because heaven forbid, the Canadian had been on, you know, one of those terrorists. And we just went about our jobs trying to figure out exactly what what this whole thing, uh, what the implications were for us here in Canada. How
0: long before, how long did the confusion last? Because I remember during those first few hours, nobody knew what the heck was going on.
6: Yeah, like I said, I mean, you know. Obviously, an organization like CSIS, for you know, in which counterterrorism is one of our part of our mandates, is one of the main things we do. We knew about Al Qaeda. We knew about Bin Laden. We knew about the threats that had been made. This wasn't the first uh, mm-hmm. time that we dealt with terrorism uh, either in Canada or around the world. Uh, we had the attack on the USS Cole a year earlier in Yemen, so we knew that groups like this were, were, were certainly capable. We didn't have the claim of responsibility right away. But it seemed quite clear to us that, in fact, that this was an act of terrorism, most like an Islamist terrorist group, jihadi group like Al-Qaeda. And then we just went to work trying to uncover any intelligence that may have led us to draw the conclusions that it was them. And, of course, a claim was made later on. But, again, I tip my hat to my, my, my professional colleagues. They did the jobs that they were trained to do and went about their work
0: um what happened to groups like al-qaeda because obviously uh as soon as this event happened the investigation started trying to figure out what this all means putting the pieces of the puzzle together where is that threat now
6: well i have bad news for your listeners and for you scott it hasn't gone away mm. uh, people think you know al-qaeda was yesterday's group bin laden of course was killed in the u.s operation in in, uh, in in pakistan um you know uh, 10 years later for many people, I think Al-Qaeda seems to be, you know, well, they're no longer a threat. And yet the United Nations in a report just said, well, Al-Qaeda didn't go anywhere. I've known that for, you know, since my retirement, Scott. I retired in 2015. You know, I've written six books on terrorism. I follow terrorism on a regular basis. Al-Qaeda is still there, as are their affiliates like Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Um, they still pose, a, you know, a very serious threat to public safety around the world. And I just wish that people would not draw this false conclusion that just because bin Laden's dead and Al- al-Zawahiri may or may not be dead, I've heard, you know, um, versions on both sides of that question, uh, they're still a very lethal bunch. And, you know, maybe they're not capable of carrying out 9-11 again or something on that scale, because, you know, we're obviously watching out for them more, but um, they're capable of doing a lot of damage around the world.
0: Um, are we, are, are we uh, uh, distracted with other groups, other problems, other threats?
6: Yes and no. So, in my time at CSIS, you know, we a lot of talk about the far right these days, Scott. So, you know, white nationalists. We have a trial mm-hmm. in Windsor now, of course, of the man that ran over the Pakistani family in London in 2021. I'm, I'm born and raised London, right, so it, it kind of hits home for me. A lot of talk about the far right, which is certainly a, a, a serious threat. It wasn't in my time at CSIS. There were no attacks in the time when I was there. That has changed. My, my concern is that people think that you know it's all about the far right. And it's not the problem with when you work at CSIS or the RCMP or CSC is that you have to look at all these actors simultaneously. And when you you draw the conclusion that you know we'll put all our resources in the far right basket, and and again that that needs resources absolutely. You got to take them from somewhere, and you take them from other investigations. So you know you're, you're you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul in this sense. So yeah, the Islamist threat is still by far the dominant threat around the world. Again, if you if you want to follow me on Twitter, I tweet every day about terrorism around the world. And 99.9% of all attacks are carried out by jihadis, but the far right has become much more, I think, prominent in the past couple of years and much more lethal. But it's it's do do our do our protectors have the resources necessary to look at it all? And my I fear my answer is no to that one.
0: Uh, Obviously, our attention to things like uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Chinese Communist Party interference with Western uh, governments and such, is that a bigger threat than this right now? Is that what it is? Is Which one is the most prevalent at the time?
6: Depends how you define threat. So Mm. in the CISIS Act, there's four main areas that CISIS can investigate. You know, there's foreign espionage, classic spy on spy. There's foreign interference, as you said, with the PRC over our last two elections, there's terrorism, there's subversion. You know, you've got to look at them all at the same time, which means you need the resources to it. So in terms of a threat to public safety, it's still terrorism. That I mean, people die because of terror. No one dies because of Chinese interference. No one dies because Russia is spying on this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it, when, you, when you talk about threat, it's it, what kind of threat are you talking about? There's national security threats, which I would argue espionage is, and there are public safety threats, which is what terrorism is. So they're kind of like apples and oranges in a way, but as I said, organizations like CSIS are mandated to look at them all at the same time And they have to make decisions. How many resources do we allot to this one versus that one? We remember uh,
0: post 9-11 travel changed greatly, taking shoes off, belts, all of that stuff. Are we more secure now? Where are we with air travel now? Well,
6: we haven't had uh, any attacks, I think, on civil aviation since that time. To the best of my knowledge, I'm probably forgetting one or two here or there. Clearly, things have changed. It's a pain in the you know where to get on a plane now these days, as opposed to the way it used to be. Mm. Um, Are we safer Certainly here in Canada, we don't see the, I think, um, maybe the level of threat. We've been at medium on a five-point scale forever here in this country. Uh, so I don't think, think we're any more sort of or less secure here in Canada. If you're in Somalia or Nigeria or Mozambique, it is worse than it has been in recent years. It, it's, it's an impossible question to ask because it depends on local circumstances. Things have changed, Scott. They're not going back. You're not going to waltz on a plane anytime soon. Um, do they make us safer? Maybe, maybe not. They certainly are, are measures in place that have been decided upon. I like to think it makes us safer. Um, but again, that's a really hard question to answer.
0: I remember uh, the, the year or two, especially the first year after this happened, people were concerned uh, about what was going to happen on the anniversary. How significant is this anniversary Is it, in the way we uh, interpret it now than we did 22 years ago? Yeah,
6: you know. When, the, when it happened, as, as catastrophic and as, as monumental as 9-11 was, Scott, those of us in intelligence were, were kind of fearful of when's the other shoe going to drop? In other yeah. words, when are we going to see another attack of that scale? And we did see attacks in Madrid, attacks in London, attacks in Paris that were huge, hundreds of casualties in, in, in those cases. What does the anniversary mean? Uh, clearly, if you're a terrorist group, what you want to do is get noticed. You want people to pay attention to you, read your propaganda. You want people to be afraid of you. So they would use this anniversary to say, hey, remember us? Remember 22 years ago what we did? Uh, We're capable of doing something analogous nowadays. Um, Look, terrorism is an ongoing threat. It it, it rises and falls depending on the groups that are involved and and what their plans are. Anniversaries are interesting things for humans, be it birthdays or anniversaries or whatever kind of thing. They're significant. You and I are talking about it on the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. I don't think it makes a difference from an intelligence and sort of securing ourselves perspective, but there's no question that it means something for humans to think back as to, you know, where were you on that day? And uh, it would be a real coup uh, for groups like Al-Qaeda to repeat something similar uh, on an anniversary. Absolutely. Phil Gersky,
0: president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, talking of the anniversary, if you want to call it that, 22nd, 22 years ago, 9-11. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. I will, Scott. You too, sir. All right. Uh, while the Prime Minister was in India or is in India with the G20, uh, the Conservatives were in Quebec last week for Quebec City for their convention. Let's bring in Peter Grip, Professor of Political Science McMaster University. He is here now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
5: I am. Thanks. Hope you're well, too. So
0: far, so good, Peter. Uh, thanks for the time, as always. Uh, your thoughts on a convention, uh, typical humdrum political stuff, anything exciting come out of this for you? What are your thoughts?
5: Well, I mean, you know, these are public uh, relations exercises and also fundraising opportunities for parties. And I think on both scores, uh, uh, the Conservatives probably did quite well coming out of the uh, the weekend. They had a record attendance of about twenty five hundred people there, Uh, and you know, they to the extent that people are paying attention to these things, which is maybe a bit limited right after Labor Day. no, they saw a well-run convention that was clearly organized to put uh, Pierre Polievre front and centre and to introduce him to Canadians. So on those scores, I suspect uh, the Conservative strategists will have seen it as a very good weekend.
0: You know, we can look back at uh, conservative politics, whether it's provincial or federal, and see many examples of the Conservatives shooting themselves in the foot when uh, many times people thought they were go- would go on to win an election and then uh, ended up falling short. have Have they turned a path in that? have they Have they seemed to figure out uh, what works? are they are they playing uh, are-, are-, are they beating the Prime Minister at his own game?
5: Yeah, I mean, I I think politicians are always shooting themselves in the foot. And it's really, we as citizens, <laughs> whether we're you know paying attention to that or not. But certainly, uh, Polievra is, I think, a, a kind of unique conservative politician, at least federally, in that he owes his election really to going out and signing up a large number of people. And that gives him an autonomy from his party that's been much greater uh, than Andrew Scheer or Aaron O'Toole before him, and maybe even uh, Stephen Harper before that. And so, you know, even in the context of this uh, this weekend, he was able to bring out a large number of his own supporters and shape uh, some of the policy decisions, sort of reducing, uh, you know, for instance, voting down uh, a, a constitutional change that would have given ridings the, the ability to appoint their own candidates, for instance, uh, you know, and, and maintaining some central control there that... Uh, you know, are going to make it harder for just any faction in the party to to embarrass him in the way that uh, Aaron O'Toole, for instance, was embarrassed when he tried to recenter the party. So, I mean, plenty of room for politicians to make errors, but Collier is not going to be ground down by his party in the same way because the party in many ways is the party he's recruited rather than the party he had, whose support he had to go and win. Many say
0: that the Conservatives don't do a good job or didn't do a good job over the last uh, election, a few elections, getting their candidate out there. Uh, obviously, more of a runway. We're not sure when an election is going to happen, if it's going to be earlier or we wait till uh, 2025. Have they done a better job at, uh, at presenting their, their candidate, presenting their leader?
5: Yeah, I mean, again, part of it may be presentation. Part of it may be that I think the Polyevra they're going to present is probably pretty close to the Polyevra that is, rather than Aaron O'Toole, for instance, where there seemed to be some disjuncture between you know how he presented himself at different times, and maybe Andrew Shear was a bit similar in that in that manner. So uh, you know, Polyevra, the one gets a sense that the person who's presented is one he's comfortable in uh, playing and portraying. And that they're unlikely to change him. And the messaging, you can sense that uh, he has a big hand in it in terms of ensuring that it's comfortable for him. So, you know, that certainly, I think, is an advantage uh, in politics is if if you can at least, you know, once you fake sincerity, you can make it. You know, and so in that Mm -hmm. way, I think he's probably better placed than many politicians because I think he's he's closer in his presentation to who he actually is.
0: Uh, the liberals, as soon as the prime minister gets back, he's, he'll be attending a caucus, uh, a caucus gathering in London. What does he have to do there to to change the discussion?
5: Uh, well, I mean, ultimately, uh, I think you know, Paulie Ever's weakness at this point is that uh, uh, he's really relied on a very weak liberal party uh, that doesn't seem to have a lot of direction. And which is having uh, is paying the price for a relatively you know weak economy and people's housing woes, uh, and so Paul can be uh, critical of that government, but his own uh, answers aren't necessarily that you know specific. You know, given the the depths of the challenges he's pointing to, you know, such as uh, you know very weak economic growth, uh, issues of inflation and so forth, uh, it's not really clear that uh, or even housing that his solutions will actually do much to to move the needle. And so, you know, if Trudeau actually comes up with some uh, plans uh, to uh, respond to these, I think it will lead to a much more uh, focused attention uh, on that and maybe makes it hard for Paulie Ever to just, you know, gather and, and make do and uh, sort of uh, make great benefit out of the unhappiness that uh, Canadians are feeling. But, you know, again, we've been saying this about the Trudeau government for a few years now that there needs to be some sort of sense of direction uh, you know, to to guide it. And it seems to be very after eight years, very hard for them to to figure out, well, what are those what are those themes that might resonate and might actually solve some of these problems that Canadians are facing?
0: Peter Graff with us, professor, uh, professor of political science, McMaster University, the aftermath of the Conver- uh, conservative convention in Quebec City and London. Liberal caucus gets together uh, later on this week. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
5: And you too when there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is
0: Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's news today's talk nine hundred all right what is up with the economic development of Hamilton we haven't talked to uh, uh, we haven't talked about this segment of uh, of the city and what we are doing as far as uh, putting our best foot forward and such. The Wood Manufacturing Council are working with Mobile, a local Hamilton company, to offer a 12-week course for females interested in learning skills around woodworking and cabinetry. This is seen as a good career building opportunity for a segment of the workforce that is generally underrepresented in this industry and a great workforce development program for Hamilton and the region. To talk more about all of this, Richard Lippmann is with us, president of the Wood Manufacturing Council and here now. Richard, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. So uh, so far, so good. Tell everybody, Richard, what the Wood Manufacturing Council is.
2: Well, the Wood Manufacturing Council started about 20 years ago, and it really started with a group of um, manufacturers who were looking for where their future skilled workforce um, was going to come from. And for a while, it was supported by a program called the Sector Council Program, um, and it where different sectors of the economy got a chance to look at um, HR and skills and training issues. And um, the guys got a, a group together on behalf of the value-added wood products industry, and we've been working towards um, attracting new people and helping to train people for the last 20 years.
0: I'm guessing that like every industry, Richard, right now, you've got a shortage of workers. You're looking for people to get into this industry.
2: Absolutely. Yep. There's lots of opportunities for people. Um, You know, our industry is kind of characterized by lots of sort of small and medium-sized companies, um, many family businesses, and uh, certainly they are looking for people. It is one of the sectors that came out of the pandemic in, in fairly good shape. Um, you know, one of my bosses talked about people being at home for a year and a half looking at their ugly kitchens, and now everybody wants a new kitchen.
0: <laughs> that's so true uh you know i remember growing up richard and i went to a pretty big high school and and you know every school of that size had its own tech wing whether it was um auto shop whether it was woodworking whether it was metal whether it was electricity whether it was with this that or the other uh and we've seemed to lost all of that uh, at, at this point do we still have the training that is needed to 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 bring these people into this industry
2: Well, you know, there was certainly a shift away um, to some extent from the the shops, but uh, I think that's coming back a little bit now. And certainly there are lots of high school teachers in Ontario who are doing a terrific job trying to uh, get kids ready for the industry. And, um, you know, the community colleges are doing the same. Um, And our program here in Hamilton is looking at sort of the entry-level positions and it's for people who don't necessarily have previous experience and who want to have some short-term training and then go to work and continue to learn from there.
0: So tell us about this 12-week course, and it's for females.
2: It is. This particular one is for females. We've been doing it for about 10 years to a variety of different audiences. Um, But there is uh, lots of opportunity in uh, installing kitchen cabinets, Um, And so we thought this might be a great way not only to to help fill that gap, but also to attract more women into the industry.
0: And are more women taking advantage of these opportunities? We're certainly hearing that we need everybody, but uh, this is also something that is attracting more and more women.
2: It is indeed. And, you know, one of the interesting things about our sector is that it's, you know, um, it has a huge variety of jobs. Um, And because it's furniture and kitchens and architectural millwork and those types of products, um, you know, there's a design component that goes along with the manufacturing. So um, certainly people with interest in design um, are more than welcome in the industry. And the companies are really willing to train people who don't have a lot of experience um, and, you know, get them ready for different positions in the industry.
0: And this is sort of an introduction course. Is that the, the idea? And then you would take a trade from there or if you, whichever direction you want to go in?
2: Yeah, it, you know, we, we call it entry level. So that's the promise to both the participants and to the manufacturers that, um, you know, people are going to learn some good basic skills. They'll go into work for the companies and, uh, you know, continue their learning. Uh, some people decide to go back to school and that, you know, that's a great un- outcome. But if people just want to work, uh, this is a chance for them to get some good basic skills and then get into the, you know, numerous opportunities that are there. And as I say, there's, you know, design, manufacturing. We're seeing more and more technology like many many industries. So the, you know, people with computer skills are welcome. And, you know, there's sales and there's marketing and there's, um, you know, shipping and there's all you know, a huge variety of, of opportunities within one of the wood manufacturing companies.
0: And how do we find out more about this course, Richard?
2: Well, um, you could go to our website, which is uh, wmc-cfb.ca, and uh, we can, you know, you'll have a chance to see what, uh, what's up with the course. So it's, you know, 12 weeks of training. And we're doing that in conjunction with mobile cabinetry, um, and then they go for a twelve-week work experience where they actually go to an employer and get a chance to, uh, you know, hone and test their skills, and then hopefully the result from that is employed.
0: Wow, I was just going to ask you about placement, but it seems like you've got uh, once you get in here and you get going, you're on your you're on your right track here.
2: Well, you know, there's good opportunities in installation, um, you know, and people can make pretty decent money doing that. Um, And, you know, there's the manufacturing side as well. And as I say, lots of small and medium-sized companies all across, you know, Hamilton, the GTA, et cetera. So there's lots of options for people.
0: Wood Manufacturing Council, working with Mobile Local Hamilton Company, a free 12-week course for females interested in learning the introductory skills of woodworking and cabinetry. Great idea. Richard, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck.
2: Well, thanks for having me,
0: David Johnston. We remember when he was the special rapporteur, uh, and one of the—I remember him saying, you know, he had like a lake or an ocean of information to go through. Anyway, whatever phrase he used, he didn't get to see all the information because there wasn't time. Nor did he get it all. Uh, And many are wondering if that is going to be the case uh, with the foreign interference inquiry going on now. Interesting article by Charles Burton, contributing to the Globe and Mail, for the foreign interference inquiry to be effective. Justice needs to have the right tools. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the European Values Center for Security Policy in Prague and former diplomat at Canada's embassy in Beijing. And he is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Hope you're
7: well. It's good to speak with you. you got to add regular on the Scott Thompson show. Oh, you always goodness. have a lot to talk about. <laughs> We're going to put that right in before the Chinese embassy
0: <laughs> stuff, um, Charles. I know that this was your concern about uh, having too much to do, not enough time to do it. Whether the person, the justice, is actually qualified for this, but are you concerned that just like with David Johnston, she's not going to get all of the information she needs?
7: Yep, that seems to be looking like it could turn into the Johnston report part two, and you know, even even in the um, in the Privy Council Office terms of reference for the public inquiry into foreign interference in federal electoral processes and democratic institutions. In the very end, they say that she will only be given those confidential cabinet documents that were provided to the independent special rapporteur on foreign interference. So like, she's not going to get anything more out of the cabinet than than Johnston did. But I think what you're talking about, the larger question is, Will she be properly resourced? Will she have, you know, lawyers who are like pit bulls that will uh, interrogate those people based on strong preparation and not letting them, you know, snow the issues? Um, And it doesn't look like it will be. It looks like we could have a return to you're sent into a, a locked room with a pile of documents and people from the relevant departments, you know, who clearly may be, in fact, who we want to be looking at in this investigation will tell you what's there and explain it to you. I mean, the fact that she has no background in anything relating to security is worrying. But if she could engage a whole lot of people who did and uh, you know, have a team that could really go through this stuff really carefully and pick up on the inconsistencies and try and figure out who may have been in China's pocket and, you know, why it is that we haven't been expelling Chinese diplomats who are involved in malign and illegal activities in Canada and why it is that we can't seem to get it together with a foreign interference transparency registry so that people in positions of policy-making uh, responsibility who you know may be receiving benefits from a foreign state would have to declare that conflict of interest, You know all that sort of stuff. There are just a lot of questions there that we'd like to see answered and I'm not convinced the government wants those answers to come out and it may be that this latest exercise is the same story. For one thing, they put far too tight a deadline on it. By the time she assembles her team, they all get cleared for top secret security. Um, they won't have much time to do much before February. So I'm hoping if she's really an aggressive person who really wants to to do this properly, that she'll tell the government, "Sorry, I can't do it that fast. I'm going to give you your first report when we've actually had enough time to go through the materials carefully enough to be able to say something that matters about them." We know that uh, the government
0: has been um, not very enthusiastic about this, said we didn't need one, then David Johnson and that whole fiasco and such, uh, and then it was the opposition was dragging this out so long, and they couldn't figure out who they were going to get to be the justice and such. Why would the opposition agree to this if there are so many concerns, or or are they
7: as concerned? Well, that does worry me, because... You know, I mean, I think the problem is that everybody who is involved in this process may be um, subject to a conflict of interest because, you know, there's not a political party that China has not been able to co-opt or play on people's naivety and greed. So, you know, the opposition may be talking a good line about how they want to get to the bottom of this and clear it up, but they may also be thinking, you know, this could expose some of our people who are just as involved as, as the governing party. So, you know, now it looks like the Conservatives are going more over to matters of the economy and, uh, and housing. And, you know, in the speech that Mr. Polyev gave in Quebec City, we didn't hear very much about foreign policy or very much about China. There was a reference, but it's clearly not as central to their, the political debate coming up this fall as it was uh, last spring.
0: Michael Chong, MP, where this all started way back when um, with with uh, Chinese Communist Party interference and such testifying uh, down in the United States. He he tweeted uh, earlier this week or this week, rather, that he's going down to do that. How does that what does that add to this conversation?
7: Well, you know, I'll certainly be tuning that in on YouTube. It'll be running live it could be that the americans inviting mr chong to come down was what stimulated the government to finally come through with this uh, inquiry and mm. and appoint a justice uh, to to undertake it and i think canada certainly does not want the united states to think that we are weak on china because that could impact on our relations with the us both internationally you know in terms of the five eyes intelligence sharing consortium and so on which is very important to us or even in terms of the u s not regarding Canada as a reliable ally and therefore not giving us these um, outs that we've traditionally had over u s isolationist economic policies, so we could find ourselves in a situation where our economy starts to suffer because the u s just just doesn't see us as as eligible for special consideration because we don't seem to be you know on line with the u s with regard to the large threat of China domestically and internationally. So, you know, it it I think the I think the fact that Chong is going is is a very positive development. I have a feeling that that the US will come out with some pretty frank questioning that will not make our government look very good in the eyes of the world. Not that we're looking very good in the eyes of the world now as it stands anyway. Mm. What needs to happen, Charles, with this inquiry, this
0: public inquiry before the next election? Because obviously, there's alleged interference in the last two. What needs to be done before the next election?
7: Well, we need to expel the people in the Chinese embassy who are coordinating election interference, right? Like we need to cripple their operation. We need to find out who among our parliamentarians and parliamentary staff are in fact beholden to a foreign state. Uh, you know, the British just last week found that there are two senior staffers in parliament that had been turned by the Chinese, most likely while they were students in China. We believe that there are about 13 of such people in Canada. Why haven't they been, you know, removed from their jobs or or brought to court to be accountable? It, it's part of the mystery of why we have so much information about Chinese malign behavior, but we don't seem to be doing anything about it, and that really seems to me as the crux of what this public inquiry should be about. Like, why can't we get it together and deal with this as effectively as our allies, the United States, Britain, and Australia, have been doing? What is it about our government that's different? And is it that that uh, that we that there is too much influence there, and there are people too high in the government who? Um, have reasons to not want to make the Chinese embassy unhappy with the Canadian government. You know, all this stuff is, is information that we want to get cleared up. If it's not so, then let's go through everything and establish that that isn't the explanation, but there's something else there. I'd like to know what it is. Only a few
0: seconds left here, Charles. When will we know whether this is worth it or not, or just another exercise like the David Johnston fiasco?
7: I think we'll figure that out pretty soon and certainly by February if if the justice produces a very weak uh, first report similar to what we got from David Johnston where you know they say nothing to see here nothing to worry about but it's all secret so we can't tell you exactly why but trust me you know if if we get that again then then I think really we just have to fold this until after the next election and try again under a different government Charles Burton with us Senior Fellow at the Centre
0: for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and his latest in the Globe and Mail uh, f- the Foreign Interference Inquiry to be effective uh, the justice needs all of the tools Charles as always thanks so much for the time be well take care thank you Scott Doug Ford takes aim at Ontario school boards over indoctrinating students over gender identity the first paragraph reads Premier Doug Ford is accused of Ontario school boards of indoctrinating students on issues of gender and echoing his peers in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan and saying parents should be informed about their children's gender identity decisions. Think about that. Parents should be informed about their child's gender identity decisions. Who says they shouldn't? Other than perhaps the York Region Board, who sent out memos to everybody saying, don't be teaching the Queen's funeral, it will traumatize the students. Don't even talk about it the day of. I don't care if it's a historic event. Or the York Region Catholic Board that's having problems with pride. Or the Peel Board that the government had to take over. Or let's remember the Halton Board who had to go through bomb scares because of a teacher that was dressing like a... Um, 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 I'll leave it at that. So now Ford's a villain saying parents should be informed about their child's gender identity decisions. Is there a parent out there that says they shouldn't be informed? Scott Radley is with us, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's going to talk about this tonight. Go ahead, Scott. What's on your mind? <laughs> well, no, I, I'm with you. I
9: don't know who the parent would be who would say, no, I, I really um, no. I don't know my child as well as the teacher who has now had them for a week of school. I have I've, I've raised this child since they were born. I've looked after them. I know everything about them. I know them inside and out, but I would rather have miss Jones who got to know them one week ago decide what's best for that child. It's, it's, but here's your answer. It's, it's unbelievable that we're even having this discussion. Doug Ford is not the villain though, in this, despite how some may paint it. And I'll tell you why. Absolutely, Angus Reid, and I think we talked about this, you may have talked about it on your show. Angus Reid did a poll back at the, I think it was the end of last month and 78% of people across the country. Yeah. Believe parents should be told and whether parents get to decide to allow it but they believe parents should be informed of what goes on with their, with their kids. And, uh, clearly five, four out of five people in Canada, I mean, look, four out of five dentists tell us to do, to chew a certain type of gum and we're supposed to go by that. So certainly four <laughs> out of five parents should have some sort of say in this. I, Scott, I just, if, if this becomes the accepted thing somehow that parents shouldn't, and the, and the answer, the reason behind this that those who would say parents shouldn't be told is because, well, some parents will not support this. Okay. But there are who things. Are you to, who are they to make that decision? Well, you're, you're, like, you're, how are, you're how assuming you... the government knows better. Yeah, you're assuming yeah. the government knows better, is more benevolent, is more loving. Uh, and, and, and so what's the next thing? Like if a child um, gets in trouble at school and like, I can tell you what, it, back in the day, my parents were strict. If I had ever come home, for example, if I had ever been brought home in a police car oh, yeah. and brought to the door, oh, I would ne- I would have been grounded until I was 57.
0: Yes. It's not what the police are going to do. It's what your parents are going to do.
9: And it was only slightly less if I got in trouble at school, like real trouble at school. I'm not talking about getting a detention, but right. if I had ever done something really bad, uh, heaven help me. Well. Okay. So knowing that some parents would be very strict with their kids, should parents not be told that their child is in trouble at school because things might not go well at home? No. Where, where, uh, where is the law? Where does this go? Where's the logical step that if we're going to say we can't trust parents to behave in a way that we find acceptable, then that parent should not be made aware of what are the things?
0: Yeah. No, I agree, and and I can't believe a school board sits there and decides that this is something we are not going to tell the parent. I mean, at the end of the day, isn't all of this built on, we're going to tell your parents. (laughs) And now all of a sudden, there's a school board that thinks that they should be keeping information about a child from the parent. That is just ludicrous
9: beyond belief. Let me give you another example. And again, we're going to talk about this next hour, but um, I, I can assure you that there are parents in this country who have very high expectations of their children's education. They expect their children to do well in school. They expect them to do well and then go on to university and then go on to a great career. There are lots of people in this country who feel that way. If a child's grades are not good, and the teacher now thinks that child is going to go home and mom or dad is going to be furious at their lack of grades should the grades be kept secret. Yeah, exactly. See, you can see where this then goes is where does the government. Why didn't
0: you tell me that my kid was a cat all this time?
9: Well, I, look, it's not even, to me, it's just a question of this requires a belief that the government, that the state, that the yeah. that the bureaucracy is better positioned to parent your child than the parent of the child who loves that kid is. And if there are a few parents who are horrible parents, you know what? There are some horrible teachers.
0: Yeah. That's no reason to make this, you know, across the board change though. I mean, come on, there's always exceptions to the rule, but this is just way over the top.
9: It, it seems I, I would be, if there was anything significant in my child's life when I was. When they were in school and I found out the school was hiding it from me, I would not be happy with that because I should be dealing with, I should be helping, walking, talking with my child. It's not your, you are simply a nine, not even nine to five, an 830 to three person, one of 30 in the class. I don't think you're competent to do what I could do as a parent.
0: Scott Radley with us coming up after the six o'clock news and you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show. Should be fun. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word Danny emails just heard Justin Trudeau uh, Justin Trudeau's plane is out of service and they're stuck in India start walking or perhaps hitch a ride on a wayward Chinese weather balloon keep right except to pass